welcome back to Farmland. On this week's show, Independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice talks Brexit, carbon taxes and the clout of farm lobby groups. Porrick Madden, FRS Operations Manager, outlines the current dairy labour situation. And is chlorothalonil set to be banned? We ask MEP Mairead McGuinness. But first, what are farmers saying about Brexit and the price of beef? From Kilkenny Mart, here's Sylvester Phelan. Agriland recently visited Kilkenny Mart to see what exactly farmers think of some of the biggest challenges facing the agri-sector, including Brexit, changing trends and whether the farming voice is being heard, and how the main farming organisations are responding to these issues. Here is what local farmers had to say. What sort of emergency measures should farm organisations be pushing for um, to protect the beef sector? Well, they'll have to look after the English market and try and keep the exports going there. Like. It have to be on Europe side, or kind of caught in the middle. Europe wants to be give England, kind of kick him and make sure no one else goes with him. We're supposed to be good Europeans, but we can't. We have to deal with them as well. So we have to be kind of both sides of the fence. I feel that if the pressure that's coming now from uh, English companies uh, are, is continued, I think the uh, English politicians will have no option but to uh, have a softer Brexit. And we, of course, unfortunately, being Irish, we are 53 to 55% supplier of the English market. So um, hopefully, um, as I said, some resolution will come. Irish are of the EU. Should never have been in it in the first place, in my books. No. Yeah, it's hard to know how to be going bad the way it is anyway. Very bad. No brings us what we want Full stop. Never, never a friend of which will happen anyway. What should farm organisations be pushing for to, to protect the safeguard Irish farm interest? Well, I think they've proven that they've been doing it very well so far, like they're one of the most organically friendly way of doing it so far, like here, so we may push that as far as we can, I think. Lobbying. Lobbying a lot stronger than the air at the minute. You know, they should be they're very quiet. High fee, especially. Lancet report was introduced as a climate change option. And we have to prove here in Ireland that a grass-based animal is the best we could have, is the best you could produce. Uh, for the consumer, it's as good as they could possibly get worldwide. And as I heard during the week, a man suffering from cancer, and uh, he had to increase his protein take big time. And he is surviving because of his consumption of red meat. Well, I think, I think uh, people just have to think they have to go too far with this not eating beef and all. I see people maybe anorexic, anorexic and all this. People are just forgetting about that. You need a certain amount of meat and all. I've seen it happening years ago. People might be just thinking that so beef is very important in the diet or any sort of meat. I think they'll just have to get out there. Like, sure, we've seen models years ago that were sort of maybe went too far with slimming and all. If we go down that road, it's, it's a bad road too. Like, so we shouldn't forget about that. Bring back the old men. They would take what we taken. They turn the grades at parliament with paperwork and accountability and everything like the, the older men wouldn't have taken what's going to before you just you could farm you could enjoy it stay you don't enjoy it it's it's, it's inspections it's hassle it's, it's everything everyone's put it down is the voice of Irish farming getting lost was it getting too diluted with too many groups yeah this new beef group seemingly have lost kind of faith in much of their face or thought that they weren't getting represented enough that's where that was started I think like yeah that and the price of it, kind of. Are there too many for your farming in general, or is it? Ah, uh, no, probably it's a big industry, like so. 
It's a huge industry for the country, so. Yeah, they're probably just too divided, you know, they're looking after this. Come together in one, one organisation that's fighting it all. Yeah, I suppose there's probably enough advices, but to get the right one, just to get the attention to come out and say it and get, you know, that's my belief. Well, me personally have no faith in none of them. None, 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 them, none of them groups. Get going there and do your own thing. It's hard to know what's wrong with Tetris. It's hard to know. I don't know, so there's something wrong with you. Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway, is with us now. Michael, down there in Kilkenny Mart, we can see there's lots of issues that farmers are really worried about. Brexit, agricultural emissions, the Lancet report, the price of beef. Yet we have, at the moment, eight unions representing farmers. Is there space for everyone at the table or are there too many voices there at the moment? Well, first of all, whether there's space or not, um, obviously farmers have decided that there is a need for uh, more representation. Uh, they obviously feel let down by some of the organisations. That's why other organisations or splinter groups set up. Um, it is very hard as for farmer organisations um, when you look at the likes of West of Ireland, you have smaller um, family farms and in other parts of the country you'd have larger farms. We know that 80% uh, of the grants goes to 20% of the farmers. There's a lot of farmers aggrieved. Then you have hill farmers in different parts of the country. And it's like, a, it's like balancing a weighing scale. It's hard to keep everyone happy. And that's why you will have more farmer organisations because some, some of the farmers, when you talk to farmers, they feel they, have, they don't be represented by one or other. Um, and you will have more 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 groups. Um, too many groups isn't the greatest thing in the world, but um, you know that's democracy. That's the way it is, and they're entitled to the representation. Michael, we're just a couple of weeks out now from Brexit. Do you think there's a lot of scaremongering going out at the moment, or do you think farmers should be very worried? Well, first of all, um, I do think there's a lot of scaremongering out there. And to be honest about it, some of the media outlets haven't helped in this situation. Um, you know, we've seen big headlines about the price of beef and we've uh, seen about massive uh, imports of Brazilian beef. As I've said before, the reality is the Red Tractor has been the most successful beef product uh, in England. The British housewife has bought into it. It's the dearest meat you can buy. Um, if you kill an animal here or kill an animal in England, there's probably between 150 and 200 euros in the difference. Um, and in fairness to Michael Gove in England, he has stated very clearly that Ireland uh, would be tariff-free. That's the first thing, which is very important because there was a lot of worry about that. And second of all, um, he basically he, he said very clearly that the standards will not be dropping. Um, the reality is, in all parts of Europe, you can buy Brazilian beef this minute, but people decide and people are more educated and the internet and all these outlets uh, educate people as well as what you eat. And there's no doubt about it that uh, European regulations are strict, our quality of beef is good, and Irish beef is probably the best of the lot because, look at mostly we are grass-fed. And I think that, you know, this scaremongering isn't helpful. In the line of Brexit, there's nothing we can do. We can't go back to England and vote in the British Parliament, so we have to wait and see. But in my opinion, um, we need to have a steady ship at the moment. Don't be, uh, you know, like for politicians not to be seen an awful lot or criticising X, Y and Z. We need the Brits. Whether we like that or not, we might be fighting with them on the years. We need them to send our beef across, as well as other countries. So let's not kick someone that you need. 
Michael, there is a report doing the rounds at the moment. It's from the Joint Committee on Climate Climate Action um, and they've put forward seven recommendations for the National Climate Action Plan. One of those recommendations is the proposed re-wetting of 270,000 hectares of peatlands. Do you think that's a good idea to create carbon sinks? Well, first of all, uh, if the state wanted to do something with their own lands, we know that there's uh, 80,000 hectares in Bordenamona that they're talking about not using in 2025 or 2027, um, where there were a million peat for uh, electricity. Uh, if they want to do that with their own land, that's fine. But um, I think that people are living in a little cuckoo cloud uh, within in that committee for the simple reason you have turbary rights, you have fee simple, you have private ownership. And I think the state has learned a fair bit from the first battle they got into 10 or 12 years ago with us in the turf cutting um, that they do, I don't think they, it would be unwise of them to come hunting again after ordinary people uh, around rural parts of Ireland. Um, there are some parts of the country um, in some of those SASCs that the state own bog and with cooperation and with um, agreement of uh, individuals where they have done rewetting, and no one has a problem with that. But let them not think, you know, the figures that's been kicked out there is basically living in a fantasy world. Do they realise the cost, first of all? Um, because I know what it costs to rewish, because I know what the contractors uh, have to get to do that work. Um, that's a budget. We, don't, we, have, we haven't even a budget to basically put take people off the streets that are homeless. We haven't a budget to take 500,000 people that are trying to get uh, an appointment in hospitals. Uh, and... Uh, we seem to draft all these reports. Um, if they think they're going to infringe on private property, uh, let them come look on for it and they'll get a fair answer back. Um, Michael, we're almost out of time, but there is another proposal in that draft report where they say that on the carbon possibility for a carbon tax, they say it may not be appropriate in the medium term to bring in a carbon tax on agriculture. Long term, do you think farmers should be prepared for the introduction of a carbon tax. In my, in my opinion, farmers need to wake up and there's a council election coming up shortly. There's European elections coming up. But in my opinion, and this is saying it very straight, that I believe the big in game here is they, they don't want to rock the boat too much at the moment because obviously there's one propping up the other in there, in the doll. And um, if there's an election over, Leo Varadkar has said openly he wants carbon tax, the opposition, in Fianna Fáil have said they agree with the carbon tax. Sinn Féin are saying they agree with the carbon tax. Um, in my opinion, they want to bring in, and look, at this is this has been talked about in places, they want to bring in a carbon tax on farmers and on farm produce, uh, for, or on farm produce, what they produce. And what they're trying to do is wait until they get elections over and let people not be caught it and let them not come back saying, oh, I didn't think they'd do that. This is the reality that's coming down the road. If people don't... On Thanks, the Mike. Vote. Thanks, Michael. We'll leave it there. Now, it's calving season, but how are dairy farmers coping on the ground? Sylvester Phelan has this report. Jim Mulhall is a dairy farmer running a 200 cow herd just outside Kilkenny Town. Agriland asks him what his typical calving routine is and what actions and facilities are key to have in place during calving season. In the run-up to calving, we just make sure um, we would we would keep most of the cows on on cubicles um, in the, during the dry period, and every every day we just walk through the walk through the cubicle sheds and just keep an eye on what cows are coming near calving. We'd have an app on the phone there, and we just we'd have the dates, and we use our eye as well. If a cow sometimes a cow will calf sooner possibly than than the date might suggest, and uh, we would just keep an eye on them every day and make sure if they're starting to spring up or starting to soften, as we say, and uh, we'd pull them down then. 
for we try and have them on a straw pen for maybe two or three days uh, before calving. The most important thing is to make sure nothing calves in the cubicle area. So we just, as I said, every day we walk through to make sure everything is everything is right and we have them down on a straw pen for calving. And uh, just make sure the cow is comfortable. The cubicles are comfortable and where she's laying down is comfort, just so that she'll have a, a normal, healthy calving, unassisted if we can if we can if we can manage it. You know, our dry cow accommodation wasn't up to scratch. Our cubicles were too small, so we've put in bigger cubicles here and it's tried to I suppose reduce our straw requirement as well so the cow doesn't need to spend as long on a straw pen because cows coming up to calving can be quite helpless you know as their pelvis starts to soften in the in the period the, the few days coming up to calving and once we move them down clean dry straw pen is everything we can to minimize mastitis as well just keep an eye on your dry cows keep walking check their others you know just check their make sure that there's no inflammation in the others it's not just good enough to run up and down the pen and say they're all grand like cows coming up to calving if they're starting to leak milk or under pressure there's a huge mastitis risk there so you can't overstress the hygiene factor keep the cubicle scraped keep the lime on them and just look at your stock and your in your heifers in particular coming up to calving just watch them that they're healthy. If a cow or a heifer is dull or off form, you know, go in and check her out. Take her temperature, check her quarters, make sure she's okay. We asked Jim if he has any key pointers for farmers and new entrants. I suppose when we get into peak calving, you just need to be disciplined, I suppose, to make sure that you have, that you focus on getting, getting the cows calved, getting the calves fed as quick as you can, and just kind of have good structures in place and just good protocols maybe that, Get the cow calved, get the beastins in, have a good supply of beastins there. We had issues here a few years ago with uh, a lot of pneumonia issues. And um, we actually traced it back, our vet came out and did a whole appraisal. And he just tested, he just traced it back to not enough beastins. We were kind of, we have a bottle there and it holds two and a half litres. And that was, we were feeding the calf the full of that. But because of we have a Holstein type of cow, I suppose, um, they tell me that, do you need to be putting at least three litres of that beastins into a cow? The milkier cow is the beastins quality is not as good. And I do think it's important, there is the saying, there's three, two, one, or one, two, three, whichever it is, like get three litres in, in the first two hours and make sure it's the first milk. Or make sure calf eating is as easy and as practical and as fast as you can. Because that's where a lot of time is lost, feeding calves and stuff. So I think that's very important, you know, get your calf and your calving facilities, have a kind of a, have a plan, you know, that, when, where are you going to shove those calves when, you, when those calves are born? Where are you going to put those calves? Jim also touched on the issue of fatigue during calving. The first couple of weeks you're grand and I think even we're calving a few heifers there at the moment and you're always more cautious with heifers because you kind of, you have to be, like most times a cow will calf on her own but a heifer you need to be there or thereabouts and you're checking the cameras and you're, you know, it is you're broken sleep. So I think the important thing is if you get an opportunity, uh, eat well and if you get an opportunity to get some sleep take it even if it's if you're finishing the evening time and you know when you're finished the jobs but whatever time it may be take a walk to the shed if there's nothing going to calf for three or four hours in your view go in and get a bit of sleep that's what we do here just go to bed for a couple of hours don't even sleep in the chair just get a bit of sleep Porrick Madden from FRS joins us now Porrick, Jim really highlights there the huge pressure that dairy farms are under at the moment in, to ensure that calving runs smoothly, which obviously takes up a lot of time and energy and organisation. Can you just give us an idea uh, nationally what the labour situation is like on dairy farms at the moment? Well, I suppose over the last number of years and, and this spring as well, you know, labour has been the hot topic on dairy farms um, and we have I suppose have seen fierce pressures there in the in the last number of springs but 
there is pressure there this year, uh, the same, but I think Mother Nature is after helping us greatly this year. Uh, we're after having a shorter winter and the spring seems to have become favorable. We wouldn't say that last Sunday and a few days after, but um, yeah, look, I think that has helped. Yes, there are pressures there. there. Our offices are very busy at the moment trying to place people on farms. We have serviced a lot of people. There are other people that need to be serviced, um, but we're, we're, we're leaving no stone unturned to try and do that. So where is FRS seeing the most demand at the moment? Where are the, the pinch points? Well, it, it is it is the dairy sector, of course. Um, and, you know, it's, it's about having a, a skilled operator and it's about having someone that's able to, to, to row in and do those jobs and work shoulder to shoulder with the farmer. The farmer is looking for someone to come in there that can support, be it calf rearing, at milking, at feeding. Um, but look, we, we, we have come to the, to the conclusion maybe at this stage where we try and break down those tasks for farmers and, you know, we possibly could supply someone to do those individual jobs rather than maybe trying to find someone that can do all those jobs. Because, you know, labour has been very scarce, as we well know, over the last number of years. And to try and find people with all those skills has got harder. So we, we've had to try and think outside the box a little bit to see what we could do to help farms. And Park, what kind of an impact does that have on the farm, on the farmer themselves, uh, when there is that scarcity of labour? What kind of pressure are they put under? Oh, look, it's, it's multifaceted, really. You know, the springtime of the year is so important to, to the dairy farm or, or the sucker farmer. Once cows are calving, the, the work, you know, is long, it's hard. There's very little sleep to be got. You know, it's, it's a farmer's livelihood at the end of the day. It's, it's so important to them. And, and we're trying to be there to support them um, as much as we possibly can. But as, as, as was seen there in the video, you know, the farmer highlighted there, getting, getting your yard organized is so important. But farmers need their sleep, you know, and there's a health and safety issue there as well. If farmers don't have that support on the ground, you know, it comes back on them all the time. And if they don't have that support and they don't get their sleep, it can break down on them. You'll have losses on the farm is one thing, but more importantly is their own health could suffer from it. And this is what leads to accidents and health and safety is a very, very important issue. And so how does the current situation compare to more recent years? Are you seeing improvements or is it actually getting worse? No, I think we are seeing improvements. There's no doubt about it. Like family services, I've never had as many operators on the ground as we do at the moment. We have over 1,500 operators working on the ground and we're all the time seeking different avenues to try and find people. As I said earlier, Mother Nature has played its part this year. When you look at in comparison to last winter, we had a very hard winter. It was very long, it was cold, it was wet, it started earlier. And then we were hit with the big snowstorm that came in, in, in late February, early March. This year, we've had a very much a dry winter. We've had great grass growth over the winter. And um, yes, the last few days have been a bit harder, but that would have helped greatly. You know, no matter what occupation you're in, when you get up in the morning and you go out, whether it is getting into your car to go to work or whether it is going out to farm, if the weather is fine, you know, it makes that job so much easier. And that has been the case for the last number of weeks since the calving season has started on the 1st of February. Uh, Pork, the Department of Business, Enterprise and Innovation last year launched the pilot working scheme for non-EEA workers to bring them into the agri-sector. There were 50 positions allotted to the dairy sector, yet there was very slow uptake on those. that They weren't fully taken up. Why Why was that? Look, I suppose there's a number of issues in it. Um, it it's costly. Uh, number one, you know, it costs a thousand euros for one of those permits. Um, to source someone from outside of the EU 
is, 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 is quite a task in itself. It takes quite a length of time to try and source those people, to vet those people, whether it is Skype calls, uh, reference checks, uh, police clearance certificates. This all takes time. Um, then, you know, there's a few little stumbling blocks as well. There's a 50-50 rule there on farm as well, where you can't have any more than 50% of your staff as non-EEA. So little things like that can, can, can stifle a farmer away from, from doing it themselves. Um, we're working on it at the moment. Um, we have a, a number of applicants going through the process. Um, it takes a bit of time, you know, um, anything from six to 12 weeks to process the applications. Um, we're in the middle of that at the moment. And I, I've been looking after that for, you know, the last three, four or five months. And um, it's, it, it's a big job of work by the time you get that application processed, you know, get the paperwork filled in, you know, and all the necessary attachments that goes with that. Um, Pork Chagas are looking to bring in 6,000 workers to the dairy sector over the next decade. How big of an issue is the seasonality of the sector and what about rates of pay? Is that a problem that you're coming across? Yes, seasonality is, is a big issue naturally enough. In, in, from our point of view, you know, um, we're looking to, to source people, source good people, but we're looking to retain people as well. You know, the, 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 the springtime of the year from you know, the last week in January, first week in February, right through until the end of April is a, is a huge busy time on farms. And the work can tend to taper off slightly after that. And sometimes it can be difficult to, to find work for people after that stage when the thing, you know, cows get out to grass, calves are getting reared, and the pressure comes off uh, off of farmyards. So, you know, to place these people and keep them in work is 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 vitally important for us because retention is hugely important. And just quickly, Pork, uh, just on the rates of pay, is that a problem? It is something we have to ad- address. Um, you know, we know the economy is going so well at the moment. There is competition out there from other sectors. We have seen that. Um, people have, you know, from the last time we had a boom, a lot of people turned away from the agri-sector and went towards, you know, construction and other, other type industries. But we have to look at it from our side. We have to address the rate situation. We have to put good conditions on farm for people to come, be attractive places to work and for people to stay. Porek, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks for Next up, the farming chemical toolbox. What lies ahead for it? Siobhan Walsh has this report from Oak Park down in Carlow. John O'Loughlin is a tillage farmer from County Kildare. Agriland visited John over winter. In the past number of years, the number of chemicals that tillage farmers like John can use has been reducing. The fungicide chlorothanol currently plays a big role in Irish agronomy programmes. John explained why he uses fungicides on his crops. We use fungicides here to protect our wheat crop from uh, various diseases, our wheat and barley. Um, if we didn't use fungicides, we the diseases would destroy all the foliage on the crop and uh, the wheat, the, the grains that we would produce would be of poor quality. The green leaf that, that the crop produces, uh, produces the starch and the sugars that, that fill the grains. So if you don't have uh, the green leaf on the crop, you don't have grains to sell. The profit is not huge anyway, so if you start to lose 30 or 40% of the yield, that's your profit gone. John is part of the Kildare Growers Group, which carries out a lot of on-farm trials to investigate different agronomy practices. We've um, a long tradition here of various companies, various organisations doing trials, both on the farm here and in neighbouring farms locally. And uh, we've always seen the benefit of uh, fungicides and and the benefits of new fungicides coming through over and above the old fungicides that we have access to. Research development is very important to to tillage farmers in the country 
in our climate, we have to use the insurance or the, the fungicides more like an insurance policy where you can't use fungicides once the crop has the disease. That's too late. You have to use them. As we know more and as we see the way the various fungicides react on the farm, we've been able to fine tune how much we use and get the timings uh, as good as we possibly can. We've been able to, to, to pull back the rates and, and use the particular products which suits the crop best. John would prefer to be using less chemicals, but explained that he cannot reach economic yields without applying fungicides. Chemicals cost money, they cost a lot of money, and obviously the less I use, the, uh, the more uh, I save, and obviously a saving is a profit to me, so um, there is no great joy in spending a lot of money on a crop that, that the price is not very high of, so obviously we have to watch every penny that we spend on the crop. So we don't like to use fungicides unnecessarily. On the two crops, the main crops we grow here, barley and wheat, Claritanol is the mainstay, has become the mainstay. Stephen Kilday is a plant pathologist at the Chagas Crops Research Centre in Oak Park, County Carlow. As many chemicals have been and are under review at EU level, we asked Stephen how the loss of these products is affecting Irish cereal production and yields. Farmers require fungicides. It's, it's one of the tools that they really require to control these diseases. The other tools, of course, are going to be agronomy. Unfortunately, the agronomy can only get us so far. And, and, and the conditions that we face in Ireland, those mild conditions, will promote the development of diseases. So fungicides, we have a range of fungicides, whether STHIs, azoles, and you mentioned Bravo or Chlorothonlin. This is a multi-site fungicide. It's been around quite a, quite a long time at this stage. Um, it is one of the ones that's up uh, for review in the, in the near process. Why is it important to the Irish farmer? Um, it's important from two real aspects. The first aspect, of course, is going to be control. And it's a very specific sort of uh, mode of action, or not mode of action, but fungicide. And it's uh, very effective at controlling diseases such as septoria on wheat and ramularia on spring and winter barley. From a second aspect in terms of importance, it's very important from an anti-resistance measurement. So it, it is included with those higher risk uh, resistance fungicides such as your STHI, such as your azoles. We call it a multi-site because it's more than likely targeting a number of different targets within the pathogen, which means that it's at a lower risk of resistance development. Stephen recently completed a report on the potential impacts that the loss of chlorothanol may have on the productivity of wheat and barley grown in Ireland. Immediately we look at it and we can look at it at those two components. The first component, the anti-resistance, we lose that as a, as a, a, a tool. Um, so we would suspect that the, the other modes of action will be more at risk of resistance development and spread. And then from the second aspect, we can see that because we already have some instance of, instances of resistance in septoria and ramularia, if we lose that com control aspect, we, we anticipate that there will be an impact on disease control in the field and then subsequently on yield. So to try and get a gauge or an idea of what that yield loss might be, we've looked at trials from 2016 and 2017. We took those two years because we think they are our key years in identifying where the problems would be. They're the years where we start to see resistance uh, or re reductions in sensitivity to the STHIs and the azoles. We compared trials where we had the, the fungicides, your STHIs, your azoles by themselves, but also then with chlorothonal added into the mix. We looked at the, the disease and we looked at the yield. And if we take just the yield per se, per se itself, what we can do is we can regard uh, the, the yield that's achieved with the fungicides and chlorothonal as potential yield. And when we drop out that chlorothonal, we can see what that yield impact would be. In terms of winter wheat, we had a, a, quite a number of trials where we could make those comparisons. And we saw some, some that actually had a very, very uh, negative or a very, very minor loss 
up to some that actually would have had uh, up to 17% potentially loss. So when we convert that into actually what this means then for the farmer, you can see that depending on grain prices, this could have a very significant impact on the net margin for the farmer. We're joined now by First Vice President of the European Parliament and MEP for Midlands Northwest, Mairead McGuinness. Mairead, is chlorothanol going to be banned? Certainly it looks like that is the direction of travel. Remember, this decision is not made by politicians. It is made on the foot of scientific evidence and new research, which points to concerns around a number of agrochemicals, but this one in particular. And the committee that made this decision, which is based on a commission proposal, uh, come from the member states. So they're experts in this area. So I think we have to bow to the scientific expertise that is questioning this particular chemical. Um, I know that cereal farmers will find it very difficult to cope if this is taken off the marketplace. But there were concerns around aquatic life and indeed human health concerns. So the decision will be taken shortly. It will have implications if the product is banned. But you probably are aware that on a number of agrochemicals, um, there is a tightening up of relicensing or indeed authorization procedures. Oh, when will it be banned, Marit? Well, we don't know the exact date, but I know that by this month we will know the fate of that particular chemical. I think it speaks to a wider issue because we had the glyphosate debate, as you know, very political debate in the Parliament. Um, and the licence for glyphosate has been renewed by five years rather than 15 years because of that political pressure. Uh, increasingly, uh, when it comes to agrochemicals, we talk about sustainable use. And in some cases, based on new evidence, there is a decision to withdraw chemicals from the marketplace. And I think that's prudent if there is evidence to suggest that there are problems. I think where it gets tricky is for farmers in Ireland, for example, who need a range, as they say, tools to work with so that they can have decent yields when prices are particularly low. And I think it, it calls for organisations like Chagask, uh, you know, public sector uh, research and innovation to come forward um, with new ways of tackling these diseases. The chemical companies are doing that. And there, there certainly is, if you like, a much more strict evaluation of chemicals today. And perhaps that's no bad thing, because as we test our water, we do that more diligently. We are finding agrochemicals entering the, the water. They're, that's costly to extract them, and we don't want them in our water supplies. So I think it's, it's a combination of understanding the needs of agriculture, but also understanding the wider environmental concerns. As you mentioned there, Marie, there's huge dependence on chlorothalonil, particularly in Ireland. Will there be a use-up period if it is banned? Usually there is, um, if it comes to a ban, that there is a time because there's stocks in store. Um, but that is only a lifeline for a certain period of time. We grow grain ourselves, so I'm aware of this dilemma for grain farmers. But there have been other products in the past that were used and then were taken off the marketplace. This is perhaps another step uh, along this path. And I think what we need to look at is, um, I was interested in the Chagas researcher very clearly identifying the yield losses and the difficulties for farmers. But that needs to be balanced with the scientific evaluation of the cost to the environment or indeed farmers' health from not that particular product, but indeed other products. And when I talk to grain farmers, we, we have made huge strides in terms of training for operators, wearing the proper equipment. I recall when my father would use agrochemicals and he would not wear a mask or would not protect himself. So I think that farmers, particularly contractors and tillage farmers, are very aware that the products they're dealing with 
you know, need to be treated with the respect because they can have negative impacts. And that's why the training and the regulation and now the more rigorous assessment of agrochemicals is just part of that process. Amrit, is there a health risk? You're out there at the forefront on this, looking at the studies, looking at the research, the evidence. Is there a health risk and where does it lie? Well, what the Commission have said is there is a risk. That's why they don't want this to be relicensed. Uh, it's around human health issues and aquatic life in particular. So if this chemical gets into the water, it has very bad impacts on life in the water, fish life, etc. Um, and if you look at, if you, I'm sure many of your viewers will be able to Google this, but you find in Ireland uh, um, where they are detecting um, traces of chemicals in the water uh, systems, farmers don't want that. Uh, and therefore we are adhering to wider buffer strips and everything to do with a, a safe rather and sustainable use. Um, so we have to reduce the level of risk of it entering the waterway. And of course, for those who operate, these chemicals need to be handled with great care. But on that score, um, I think Ireland perhaps is leading the way on that, because when I talk to colleagues from other member states, they don't seem to have the same rigor around the, the, the wear, the, the gear that um, tillage farmers would wear. But I think it's very prudent for people to protect themselves. But Maria, you're saying about Ireland leading the way on it and highlighting the, the dependency of the Irish tillage sector in particular on chlorothalonil. Is it possible that Ireland could put forward a case for some kind of special dispensation? Ireland, the UK, Belgium, very dependent on this fungicide. I know what's interesting, if you look at some of the reports and research, there's a suggestion that chemicals um, react differently in different soils and that perhaps an overarching decision on a chemical may not be appropriate. But that would be down to the scientists in Ireland and the experts to come up with an evaluation that says this product can be used safely in Ireland. If they can't do that, then it's very unlikely that they will go to committee um, and reject the proposal to ban this product. So I think we have to be sensitive to the evidence and those who have the expertise in this area, if they really believe that this product can be used safely in Ireland and is necessary, then to put forward that particular case. I'm not so sure um, whether in a situation where there's a lot of publicity around a chemical been banned at EU level and we continue to use it, whether that might have consequences. Uh, but it certainly is an issue that we need to discuss openly. And I know for a lot of tillage farmers, the margins are very tight. Um, it's, they've had difficult years. The idea of not having these particular chemicals to use would have consequences, as your experts have said. Um, nonetheless, the balance for the Commission and indeed the experts around the table, which will, will include ir an Irish expert, um, if this product is banned, they take into account all of the details, or new evidence that's come forward. Mairead, we're out of time. Thank you very much. And we'll be watching very closely on any developments. That's it for this week. Um, if you have any stories, please reach out to us on any of our platforms. We'll see you next time. Thank you.